Amen. Well, let's take our Bibles and let's open again to the book of Habakkuk. We're in Habakkuk chapter 1. We'll finish the chapter today. As you're turning there, a woman in New York City had a cat. And uh, actually, it's probably better to say that the cat had her. Uh, She loved this cat. She would stroke its fur. She would pamper it. She would feed it uh, all the delicate treats that cats like. The problem was that her husband hated this cat. He had an allergy to the fur, and he would go to work, and he would find fur all over his clothes. And uh, during the middle of the night, the cat would jump up on the bed and wake him up. And and, uh, he hated the smell of the litter box. He hated everything about this cat. So he did something pretty bad one day. Uh, One weekend when his wife was out of town, he took the cat, he put it in a bag, and he threw it in the Hudson River uh, in New York. And when his wife came back, she was grief-stricken. She was frustrated. She was just overwhelmed with grief, and, and uh, the husband sort of felt bad. He realized he did something pretty awful. He said, look, honey, look, I know how much that cat meant to you, so i tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to put an ad in the paper, and I'm going to offer a reward for $500 to anyone who'll find that cat. And uh, his wife was, was pretty happy about that. Well, nothing came of it. So a few days later, he said, honey, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to offer a reward for $1,000 to anyone who can find that cat. And uh, he went to work after that ad went out in the newspaper. And a friend saw the ad and he said, buddy, have you lost your mind? There's not a cat in the whole world that's worth that much money. And the man replied with these words, and I want you to remember them. He said, when you know what I know, you can afford to be generous. Now, I'll give you a second to laugh at home. That's hilarious. But the story illustrates the fact that being in the know has a profound effect on both our actions and our attitudes. And for those who are in Christ, we are a people in the know. In dark days, the Christian has a knowledge that that keeps us secure when all the world is swirling in uncertainty. 1 John 3, 14, we know that we passed from death to life because we know him. Romans 8, 28, we know all things work together for good to those that love God, to those called according to his purposes. 2 Corinthians 5, 1, we know that if our earthly house, this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, a house that's eternal in the heavens. 1 John 3, 1, we know that when Christ shall appear, we shall be like him. We are a people with knowledge of God that makes us secure. It makes us have solid ground when everything else is fading away. We're a people who can stand tall like an exclamation mark, not not stand bent over like a question mark. We're a people in the know. Now, the problem for, for most of us The problem really for all of us is that we tend to forget what we know. We are a forgetful people. And I I sort of couch it like this. You and I tend to suffer from spiritual amnesia. You and I, we, we come to these difficult places in life, and it's like we forget all the things we know about God. And so what we need to do is we need to come back to this place. We need to come back to God's word and we need to be fueled up again with these reminders that will tell us how secure we are in the God of our salvation. So that's what I want to do for us today. That's what we need today. We need these reminders of our security in God, whether we're dealing with a disease, 
whether we're dealing with a financial loss, whether we're dealing with emotional or spiritual turmoil, we need the solid ground of knowing who God is and what He will be to us in our dark days. You know, not too long ago, I was showing a cartoon to my children. I was showing them cartoons I used to watch when I was a kid, uh, The Roadrunner and The Coyote. You probably remember that uh, from your childhood. Uh, there's always that scene in, in the Roadrunner and the Coyote. The Roadrunner speeds off the cliff and the Coyote follows him. And the Coyote is just hovering over empty air. And he sort of reaches down and he feels underneath him. And there's no solid ground anywhere. And, and I, I, I sort of pictured this passage sort of like that. We are a people looking for solid ground to stand on. And the world is looking for solid ground to stand on. And God gives us his solid ground in himself in the word of God. So today, let's take our Bibles. We're back in the book of Habakkuk. It's a series I've entitled Trusting God When You Don't Understand. And today we're going to look at solid ground when you don't understand. And, and I love this book. I love the book of Habakkuk. I really, I hope that you'll engage with it. I hope you'll do your Bible studies in it. You can read the whole thing in about 10 minutes. It's a short book. We're going to be in it for another three weeks after today. But this is a man who is frustrated. He's frustrated with life. He's, he's living in a world with more harsh realities than we have. It's worse than coronavirus. It's impending doom. He's got enemies at the gate. He's got sin in the camp. He's got confusion in his mind and he's got depression in his heart. This is a guy who's frustrated with life and he starts off with a complaint. Verse two, he just rattles off all of his complaint to God. Why is my life like this? And that's what some of you may be thinking in your calamity. God, why are you doing this? Why is life so hard? Why is it that there's so much struggle and anxiety and fear? I need solid ground. And today, as we finish chapter one, we're going to see a solid ground that you and I can stand on with confidence. So let's take our Bible and let's stand together in honor of God's word. We're going to read the rest of chapter one. We'll start in verse 12. Are you not from everlasting O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you look idly at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallow up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler, he brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offering to his dragnet. For by them, he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net, mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. If you're looking for solid ground today, I want to show it to you. This is solid ground. We're going to look at the character of God. We're going to look at, at who God is for his people. This will be solid ground when your world seems shaky. In fact, Adrian Rogers called this section, how to stay together in a world that's falling apart. 
That's really what I want to talk to you about today. How, it is, how is it that you and I can stay together in a world that's falling apart? I have three points, three very simple things for you and me to find solid ground in our great calamity. So may God bless the reading, the preaching of his word, and may God's people just receive this with joy in their hearts today. You may be seated. Okay, let's go. Three ways that you and I can find solid ground. We're going to find solid ground when everything else is falling apart. Three very simple points. Number one, you need to distrust your own limited judgments. You and I can tend to trust our own judgments and and we get very frustrated when it doesn't go our way. We need to learn to distrust our judgments. That's what God would call us to today. In fact, let me just give you a quick summary from, from last week's sermon. Our story begins with a guy who's frustrated. Habakkuk is complaining. He's looking around. He's seeing uh, the fighting among his own people. He's seeing ungodliness among his own people. He's seeing injustice. And he basically cries out to God and says, God, when are you going to step in and judge your people? When are you going to discipline your people? In fact, maybe in his mind, he's thinking, when are you going to bring us back to revival like the days of King Josiah? We were so close to revival. When are we going to go back to that? Why are you letting things just descend in my city? Why are you letting things in my nation just descend into anarchy? Maybe you ask that about your job, about your life, about your context. God, why are you allowing this? Why are you allowing this sickness, this trouble in my life, this relational turmoil? Maybe you could say that from your heart. And and what God does in this section is he teaches Habakkuk to trust him. He says, look and look again. Be amazed and be amazed. Wonder at what I'm doing. I am doing some things, but I'm not going to do it your way. Habakkuk's problem, this is Habakkuk's basic problem, is that he's not doing things the way that Habakkuk would do them. He's basically saying, God, you're not doing it my way. You're using these Babylonians, these wicked, evil people. That's not what I would do. I would destroy the Babylonians and I would raise up your people, but you're using them. I don't don't understand that. Look at verse 14. In verse 14, we see just how abusive these people are. And we saw some of that last time. But in verses 14 through 16, we see really a little bit more of who these people are. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. This is, this is the picture of Israel as a helpless nation. They're sort of like fish in the sea. They're being They're being surrounded by a a dragnet. They're being surrounded and they're being put on a hook. And actually, this was a historical event. In fact, there's an ancient drawing here. uh, And this is a picture of what Babylon did to their slaves, what they did to their conquered people. They would sometimes blind their captives, but they would put hooks through the lips or the jaws of their captives, and they would pull them away on a chain. They would bind them their hands, and they would basically, basically go on a march to another part of the kingdom as slaves. This was a reality for where Israel would be headed. There would be three more exiles, 605, 597, 586, all three dates. There would be three captivities where something like this would be taking place. These are an abusive people. These are people who are 
pagan to the core. In fact, in verse 16, we see that he makes sacrifices to his net. He, he makes offerings to his dragnet. This is very fascinating. This is a people who are as pagan as they can be. They do not know the true God. In fact, they're sacrificing to their net. They're, they're giving offerings to their own might, basically, to their own wisdom. They don't worship the true God. And so Habakkuk is looking at this and he's saying, that's not how I would do it. I, I wouldn't use a people like that. I wouldn't use a pagan people to discipline your people. I mean, they're worse than us. This would, this would be like radical Islam conquering the United States and being used to judge the United States. It's unthinkable. And God is teaching Habakkuk not to trust in his own thinking. God is teaching Habakkuk that God's ways are not his ways. He's learning his limitations. Habakkuk is learning that the mind of the infinite God is far beyond anything that he can comprehend. He's learning just how blind he is to God's cosmic wisdom. He's learning that God uses things for good, bad things for our good. He turns them for our good, things we would never call good in the moment. In fact, look at verse 12. He starts to get a taste of this. Are you not from everlasting? Do you not have eternal wisdom? Are you not the eternal God with eternal wisdom and majesty? Uh, do you not see things different than I do? Verse 12 is a picture of, of the wise God who has wisdom that spans the ages. Of course we don't understand his ways. Of course there are times when we're, we're thinking, boy, I would do things different. You know what it's like? It's sort of like you know, I, let's say that I'm looking at financial matters for my future and for my retirement, and my daughter, Selah, is seven. Can you imagine the absurdity of, of me going to, to Selah and saying, you know, sweetheart, I, I was just wondering if you could help me with a few financial decisions that daddy has to make. You know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm thinking about retirement, and I just wanted your input. What would you prefer? Would you think that, that daddy should get a Roth IRA, or should I get the 403B, or maybe a mixture of both? What's your advice? Selah's going to have no clue what I'm talking about. It's out of her realm of wisdom. That's sort of what it's like for the children of God to question his ways. We're so limited. We we see so little. Beloved, the solid ground that you and I have to get to, it starts with the truth that we are limited in our understanding and we do not see everything that God sees. Therefore, we have to say, God, you have the wisdom of ages. I'm so blind. I have to trust you with my future. God, I have to, tr and you have to pray this. God, I have to trust you with the financial collapse that we're looking at. God, I have to trust you with the sickness that's come to my family. God, I have to trust you because I'm, I'm bound in time and you are the God of everlasting. You are the God of eternity. Therefore, I distrust myself. And that's where true wisdom begins. God, because you are the God of everlasting, we can put our trust in you and know that you will faithfully carry it out. And by the way, we can trust that God is working this out for victory, that really the victory's already been secured. He's outside of time, and he's already secured the victory. It's sort of like watching sports during COVID-19. Have you been watching any sports recently? 
It's been a lot of reruns. It's, uh, it's games from bygone ages, and that's all that's on ESPN. And that's, it's, uh, it's been kind of interesting because it takes away a lot of the concern, doesn't it? It's like, I wonder who's going to win. We already know. We watched that game. I, I, we're watching reruns of old games, and we already know the outcome. That's what it's like when a Christian puts their trust in God. We already know the victory that has been taken. God is outside of time. He has already determined the victory. Therefore, we need to distrust, right? When it's the, when it's the bottom of the ninth, right? And you, you don't know whether your team's going to go into overtime or not. It looks bad, but we already know the victory has been struck. That's how you and I ought to go through life, distrusting ourselves, but trusting God that the victory is certain. That's number one. Our second point this morning, not only do we need to distrust our limited judgments, we need to trust in God's unchanging character. As many uh, biblical uh, theologians say, this is, this is what it always comes down to. It's not whether you believe in God, it's what kind of God you believe in. It's not whether you believe in God or not, it's what kind of God you believe in. It's the character of God. We need to put our trust in God's unchanging character. It's not enough for Habakkuk to trust his own, to not trust his own judgments. He needs a solid place to stand. He needs some place of strength and stability. And when you don't understand God's ways, you can trust in his character. Let me say that again. You might even write that down. When you don't understand God's ways, you can trust in his character. Habakkuk says, God, when there's something I don't understand about you, I have to go back to who you are. And that's a great reminder that God will never violate his character towards his actions to you. He will never change his mind. He will never become something other than what he is. He will never go back on his promises. God never changes. And this is a solid ground for us. And so what we see over a few verses is Habakkuk reciting his theology of God. In fact, I want to give you five simple words to write down. Just write them down wherever you're taking notes. You can find the outline on the My Central Church app, but write these five words down. Number one, write down the word eternal. We've already seen this. We've already looked at this. I won't spend much more time here. You, are you not from everlasting? God is an eternal being. He had no beginning. He will have no end. God is outside of history. He sees all history. He's not bound by history. Habakkuk is putting all his problems next to the eternal God and letting the eternal God dwarf and overwhelm his problems. God is entirely different than the Chaldean or the Babylonian God in verse 16. God is outside of history. God is not ruled by time and space. He created time and space. He is not subject to history. He creates history. I love this quote from J.I. Packer. It's at the bottom of your handout. It says, God exists forever and is always the same. He does not grow older. His life does not wax or wane. He does not gain new powers or lose those that he once had. He does not mature or develop. He does not get stronger or weaker or wiser as time goes by. He cannot change for the better, for he's already perfect. And being perfect, he cannot change for the worst. God cannot cease to be what he is. Such is the power of God's endless life. And what he's saying is that God is never surprised. God is eternal. You will never hear the sound of a gasp coming from the throne of heaven. As one pastor put it, 
Has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? That's a great thought. In shifting times, we need a God who never changes, who works history and plans history for His plan and purpose. And this is a great peace to the people of God. We serve an eternal God. Write down the word self-existent. Also, we see this in the word Lord. Oh, Lord, I hope in your Bible, these are all capital letters. That's an uh, that's explanation that that's the, what's called the tetragrammaton. That's the, a technical term for Yahweh. It's God's holy name. It's God's name that he gave to Moses. Who shall I say sent me? And Moses says, tell, or, and God says to Moses, um, tell them that I am has sent you. That's the word. It's, it's I am. God is the self-existent God. He is not depending, uh, not dependent on anything else that happens in this world. He is self-existent. He is self-determining. Therefore, his purpose never changes. And that's solid ground to you and I. When everything else is up for change, God never changes. He is self-existent. Write down the third word, the word holy. God is holy. See that in a couple of places. We see it here in verse 12. My God, my holy one. So there's a personal relationship, but it's also he's a holy God. This is far different than the Greek gods. This is far different than the, the gods of the age that were capricious and evil and selfish. God is holy. And he remembers, now wait just a second. If God is holy, he is separate from sin. He can only do what is wise, right, and good. Theologians call God that holy other being. He is not like us. Verse 13 tells us that he is of pure eyes than to see evil. He cannot look at wrong. This is who we're dealing with. A God who will always do what is right. And so in a world that's falling apart, you and I can rest in the character of God's holiness. And because he's holy, he will always behave in what is wise, right, and good for us. His holiness guarantees his righteous action for you. Write down the word faithfulness. He's faithful. This is a very interesting section. In verse 12, O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. Where did those four words come from? God didn't tell him that. This is Habakkuk doing some theology in his head. We shall not die. This, this is him remembering back to the promises that God gave Abraham, a promise to, to make his descendants like the sand of the, the seashore, like the stars in the sky, a promise to bring from that line the Messiah who would save from sin. And he's remembering, he's doing some theology. No, God, you're faithful. You've promised to increase your people. You've promised that we will dwell in the land. And Habakkuk remembers that God is a God who keeps his promises no matter what. And so he's sort of emboldened by that. Now, God swore an oath to be faithful to us to a thousand generations. And that's why Habakkuk calls him a rock. You are a rock. God is like an unchanging rock of stability. Beloved, this is a great word of peace to you and me. The stars will fall out of the sky long before God changes in his faithfulness to his people. You can stand on this rock. He will be faithful to you. He will keep you in perfect peace. He's also sovereign. This is our fifth and final word. He's sovereign. We see in verse 12, 
O Lord, you've ordained them as a judgment. And you, O O rock, you have established them for reproof. What he's saying is, God, I'm starting to see some of your ways. You are sovereignly using the bad things in my life, these terrible things, as a discipline. Doesn't that, well, isn't that what the author of Hebrews says in chapter 12? That every son that God loves, every son that God receives, he disciplines. If you don't get the discipline of God, you're an unloved son. God is sovereign over all the bad things that enter your life, and God uses them. They're not wasted. The Chaldeans, the Babylonians, they're just God's tool to discipline his children. We need to understand that point, that God uses hard days to change us. What a peace it would be to you if you looked at the difficult things happening at your job, and you said, God, you're using this. You're changing me. God, I I, I want to be receptive to your discipline. God, I want to change. What if you looked at the hard things happening in your health and you said, God, you're using this. You're changing me. I want to be receptive to that. You're sovereign even over this. And God, I trust you. Whatever you have for me. That's what you and I need to respond with in this time. The Bible is constantly preaching the sovereignty of God. In 1 Timothy 1, Paul will say, that's why I'm suffering as I am, because I know whom I believed, and I'm convinced that he's able to guard that which I've entrusted to him until that day. I trust him. He's working out all this. He's able to guard me. In Proverbs 16, we're told that a man will plan his course, but the Lord determines his steps. In Proverbs 19, many are the plans in a man's heart, But it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. We make our plans, but God is sovereign over our plans even. Lamentations 3.37, who can speak and have it happen if the Lord has not decreed it? I can't even open my mouth and utter a word if the Lord doesn't allow it. That's a great thought. Beloved, the, the question for you and me today is not, do I believe in God? The question for you and me today is, what kind of God do I believe in? If I don't trust in God's eternality, I'll forever question his wisdom. If I don't trust in God's faithful love, I'll forever question his commitment to me. If I I don't trust in his sovereignty, I will forever question his power. If I don't trust in his holiness, I'll always wonder, is he doing right by me? Is he doing what is good for me? Is he doing what's fair for me? No, God is a holy God. You know, there's a great story of a, a minister, a pastor, and he's, he's, uh, he's, at, he's doing a wedding, and he's got the groom here, and he's got the, the bride here. And that great moment in the ceremony comes. Um, you know, uh, he, he asks the question to the groom, will you take this woman to be your lawfully wedded wife? And, and he turns to the man, and he says, will you? And the man sort of stutters. It's everything you don't want to happen at a wedding. The man stutters and he says, well, you know, I've been thinking about it for a while and uh, I've really been considering that. And the, the minister was stunned. I mean, imagine this happening in a wedding, all the people gathered around and, and the minister says, well, that's good that you've been thinking about it, but I, I just, I've asked you a question. The question is, will you? Will you take her? 
And he asked again. And the man stuttered some more, and he just kind of thought about it. He said, you know, when I think about it, I really like the idea, and I get excited about her. And the minister said, that's good that you get excited about her. We're all happy about that. But once again, young man, I've asked you a question. Will you? And after a long pause, the young man finally says, I will. And then the, the minister turns to the woman and says, and you, madam, as the bride, will you now take this idiot to be your lawfully wedded husband? Uh, now, I don't know if what happened at that point, but uh, I love the illustration that that provides for us today. God is not like this waffling groom. God is not like this groom who's unsure on whether he's committed or not to his people. He's not a guy that's trying to go back and forth, trying to make up his mind. Beloved, the universe will collapse on itself before God's commitment ends towards his people. And the cosmos will evaporate before God changes to be who he truly is. If you are in Christ, it is settled. God is for you. And if God is for you, who can be against you? Facing the changes of life requires a God that never changes. So the question is not if you believe in God. The question is, what kind of God do you believe in? We need to distrust our limited judgments. We need to trust in God's unchanging character. This is going to be solid ground for us. And as we close, there's one point of, one final point of solid ground. We need to wait with patient expectation. So much of life is waiting. But that's how this section of the book of Habakkuk ends. He asks his questions. He hears something from God. He asks more questions, and now he's left waiting. And it says in verse 17, is he to keep on emptying his net and and mercilessly killing nations forever? He's talking about Babylon. Is this just going to keep on going? When's this going to stop? And he doesn't have an answer. And he says, I'll take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me. He's a watchman. He's taken up the position of a watchman. What is a watchman? A watchman is someone who stood on the rampart, someone who stood on the tower edges and looked out on the horizon, and he looked for movement in the distance. And that's what he's saying. I'm just going, I don't have all the answers that I want. Are they going to prosper forever? Will the bad guys win forever? God, I don't, I don't know what our future holds, so I'm going to be expectant in these hard days. Habakkuk laid it all out, and now he's looking for God's answer, and he's waiting on God to make things clearer. So, so here's what that means for, for you and me. We may not have all the answers we wish we had right now. There may be some answers that, that are kept from you for a season. Some of you are waiting right now. Some of you are waiting on a treatment plan. Some of you are waiting to go back to work. Some of you are waiting on a paycheck. But we have to remember that God is not beholden to us, to our timetables. God is not our bellboy. He's a king. And we need to wait. And we need to submit. But, but beloved, notice this one thing. Biblical waiting 
is fueled by faith and expectation. Biblical waiting is fueled by faith and expectation. It's that you and I believe that there is an answer coming and we expect it and we wait for it until something happens. In fact, I love this illustration. Someone gave me this a few years ago. Um, The illustration of the acronym PUSH. P-U-S-H. PUSH. Pray until something happens. That's what you and I need to do in our waiting season. We need to, to scan the horizons, to be expectant, but to keep praying until God works. Pray until something happens. That's how we wait. Even if you and I have no answer until heaven, you say God is faithful and he will prove it in the end. He will prove it. Heaven will simply be God's unending uh, vindication of our trust in him, even when we don't understand, even when we wait with expectation. I don't know where you're at. I don't know where you're watching this sermon from. I don't know. Maybe some of you just stumbled on this page. Maybe you stumbled on our Facebook feed. Maybe you stumbled on our website and you're watching today's service. God has you waiting. God has you in this place of desperation. I want to encourage you to push. Keep praying. Keep watching. Keep having the faith that never gives up. If you've been praying for revival for 20 years, it's still worth praying for, and you need to keep praying with expectation. Maybe we're right on the edge. Closing thought. In 1863, there was a a poet, a guy named Henry Longfellow, and he had the worst year of his life. First, his child died. He had an infant child, and the child passed away. Then in a bizarre accident, his wife, whose name was Fanny, she got into a fire, and her dress caught on fire, and she started yelling for her husband, and Henry came, and first he grabbed a rug, and he tried to put the fire out, and that didn't work. Then he tried to smother the fire with his own body, and he threw himself on his, his wife, and, and she died. Uh, the next day, they had her funeral, and uh, he could not even attend her funeral because he was so badly burned by the fire. He sort of lost his mind. He had to go to an asylum for a time. And to make matters worse, his, worse, his son, during this period of American history, was involved in uh, the American Civil War, and his son uh, actually went to join the Union Army, and his son got typhoid fever. His son uh, was wounded, paralyzed, laying in a hospital bed on Christmas Day. It's a pretty bad year. Lost your child, lost your wife. Uh, Your son loses the use of his legs. It's a hard season. He's actually a pretty famous guy, though. He wrote a a poem. He wrote a, a hymn, and we sing it all the time. I heard the bells on Christmas Day. And he sort of catalogs his feelings in this time of his life. He said, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play. And wild and sweet, the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. He wrote those words and he thought to himself, it's not true. I'm living in a world I I don't understand. My wife is dead. My child is dead. My son is paralyzed. We've just had Gettysburg, this bloody battle 
where so many souls were lost. I don't understand the world I'm living in. So he wrote another verse. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth and goodwill to men. He's saying the problem is when I hear those bells, I know and I feel that what's around me is not right. There's no peace. There's no peace on earth. And he comes to this place of realizing that hate is strong. But then he moves in the final verse to a place of, of, of joy and, and resilience. And he finds solid ground. In, in this final verse, he ends in the right place. He says, Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail with peace on earth and goodwill to men. What he's saying is, is I have found my peace in the character of who God is, though everything is messed up in this life. I mean, everything is messed up. God is faithful to his people. He's not dead. He's eternal. He doesn't sleep. He is active. He is holy. He is doing what is wise, right, and good for his people, even though I can't see it. So, so with the eyes of faith, here's where he triumphs. Here's, here's the end. The wrong shall fail. They're not failing now. I don't see it now, but it will happen. And the right prevail. And there will be peace on earth. Dear friend, that's, that's the place you need to be today. That's the place that God's word in Habakkuk calls us to. It's to trust God even when you're frustrated, is to trust God by standing on his solid ground. The character of who God is, not your own wisdom, but the character of who he is with prayerful expectation. I challenge you to push harder this week. And by the way, as we conclude, I want, I want to invite you back for the coming weeks. There'll be more answers that will come. There's more answers to the problem of evil there's more answers to, to violence and injustice and evil in the world and the reason that God has allowed injustice. But, but I want to share this with you. The main reason that God has allowed evil and injustice and, and terror in this world, and the main answer for that happened 2,000 years ago on the cross of Jesus Christ. Why is there terrorism in the world? It was so that Jesus could be terrorized and bear the sins of the world of all who would believe. Why is there evil in the world? It, it was so that Jesus might bear it away. Why is there injustice? It was so that Jesus might be unjust, experience injustice on the cross and he might bear the sins of all who would believe in his name. You see, the ultimate reason that God has allowed the wicked to prosper it's so that God could send his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross in your place. Jesus was a lamb slain. The revelation tells us before the foundation of the world, there had to be terror, there had to be injustice. And yet God, listen to me, God uses this horrible moment of sin, this horrible moment of violence to bring about salvation. And I want to give a gospel call to any of you watching here today. This is the gospel. All of us have sinned. All of us have broken God's law. You and me, we've broken God's law. We've lied. We've stolen. 
We've looked on others with lustful hearts. You and I, in multiple, in a myriad of ways, we have broken the law of God and we deserve the wrath of God. But God is a God of mercy, dear friend. God is a God of justice, but he's a God of mercy. And he shows you his mercy when his son was a victim of violence and injustice, and he was brutally nailed to a cross. You see, that cross, a lot of people don't understand this, that cross was a judicial act where Jesus bore the punishment that you deserve for your sin. God poured out all his wrath on Jesus so that if you would repent of your sin and believe in him, you would have the gift of everlasting life. Oh, friend, won't you do that today? Won't you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be forgiven of all your sins? If you do that, God would wash you white as snow. God would take away your sin. He would adopt you into his very family. You'd be made right with God. Won't you do that today? That's the answer of God's justice. Habakkuk hasn't seen it yet, but we on this side of history, we know that it all culminates at the cross and it all culminates with this free offer of salvation to you right now. Won't you trust him for your eternity. You see, this story is about trusting him in life. But really, it's a story about trusting him for eternity by believing in the Son who is salvation. I'm going to pray for you. For those of you far from God, I'm going to pray that you'd believe on the Lord Jesus Christ right now and be saved. For those of you who are believers, I'm going to pray that you would grow in your strengthening this week, that you would be strong in the Lord, trusting him to be your solid ground, even when you don't understand. Let's do that together now. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this word. We thank you for the message of Habakkuk. Evil abounds. But Father, we're so encouraged to know, as R.C. Sproul said, that uh, there's not one renegade molecule over the entire plane of existence. That we may not know what tomorrow holds, but we know the one who holds tomorrow. That is our great encouragement today, Lord. We thank you for your sovereignty. We thank you for who you are in holiness. We thank you that you are eternal. Thank you that the truth of your nature and your character girds us up with confidence so that we're not bent over like a question mark. We're standing tall like an exclamation mark. The people of God experience the peace of God in times like this. And so, Father, we rejoice in that. Father, for those who are far from you, who are watching this feed, Lord, I pray that they would just believe on your name today. They would believe on your son whom you sent to die for their sins who died, who was buried, who rose on the third day, that they might believe in his name and be saved. Father, I pray that you would do that in your grace and mercy. We pray all these things in the precious name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, let's stand together. Let's worship. There's a couple more songs, and we have a final benediction and a couple of announcements. Please stay tuned until the end of our our time together this morning. God bless you.